The Holy Gospel according to Luke, the fifth chapter. Glory to you, Lord. Once while Jesus was standing beside the lake of Gennesaret and the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he saw two boats there at the shore of the lake. The fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little way from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let your nets down for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we have worked all night long but have caught nothing. Yet if you say so, I will down the nets. When they had done this, they caught so many fish that their nets were beginning to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For he and all who were with him were amazed at the catch of fish that they had taken. So also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Then Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching people. When they had brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, O Christ. Christ. In our readings for today, we hear at least part of the call stories of three of the absolute giants among giants in our faith's history, those three being the prophet Isaiah, St. Peter, and St. Paul. The common thread in the call stories of these three giants is not just that they proved to be giants, but also the fact that when the clear call of God, holding hands in each case with a clear awareness of the very present and holy awesomeness of God, came their way, they each of them fell to their knees, Peter and Paul, literally Isaiah figuratively, declaring both their unworthiness to be in the presence of God and their unfitness to serve the call to which they now found themselves being called to by God. Isaiah's call took the form of a vision, which was clearly a heaven of a vision, when, in which he seemingly experienced in the temple and in which he saw God in God's heaven and on God's throne. And so expansive was this vision, says Isaiah, that just the hem of God's robe completely filled the temple. And around God were flying six-winged heavenly beings called seraphim, although only two of the wings were actually used for flying because with the other four wings, the seraphim, Isaiah says, covered themselves, presumably because the holiness of God that up close and personal is so all-consumingly holy so as to be actually something you need to be shielded from. And as they flew, they sang their own version of the hymn we sang to open worship today. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Except that though we, because it's one of our favorites, sang that hymn with whatever amount of earthly gusto we could muster, the seraphim sang this very favorite hymn of theirs with such heavenly gusto, says Isaiah, that the pivots of the thresholds in the temple shook. And Isaiah said, Woe is me, 
for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. But then in his vision, one of the seraphim picked up a live coal from the altar with a pair of tongs and then flew clear over to Isaiah to touch his lips with it, then saying, now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. And then Isaiah heard God speak. And what God said was, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah then sang his version of the song with which we will end worship today. Here I am, Lord, send me. And then there's Peter cleaning his nets after the worst night of fishing he's ever seen. When Jesus comes and climbs in his boat, first to preach from it and then miraculously to show Peter a catch of fish like he's never seen. And when he saw it, says Luke, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. But Jesus didn't go away. He said, Follow me and we'll fish for people. And Peter then left the biggest ever catch of his life for others, others to have. And he did follow. Who knows? Maybe he sang. Maybe something like, you have come down to the lake shore, seeking neither the wise nor the wealthy, but only asking for me to follow. Then there's Paul off to Damascus to round up some more Christians to persecute or even perhaps kill when the literally blinding glory of the risen and ascended to the right hand of God, Lord Jesus, knocks him flat off his donkey, his expectation then clearly being that he was now about to be the one who was killed. Instead, he found himself to become asked to become one of those Christians who fished for people. And he did. Reflecting on it later, in our second reading today, he said, I am the least of the apostles, unfit even to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. He didn't sing, but he inspired songs. Like amazing grace, how sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Now to be clear, Isaiah, Peter, and Paul were absolutely correct in assessing their unworthiness to be drawn into the holy, up close to the holiness of God, and they were correct as well in assessing the insufficiency of their qualifications when it came to actually doing what God would call them to do. It's just that, of course, they all three of them were simultaneously incorrect and so deeply unappreciating. How deeply amazing is the grace of God. My grandpa Dykstra was something of a, of, a, uh, of a legend in northwest Iowa, in some ways kind of from the fringes at times. He was, well, long story. On many Sundays, he would pedal his bike 
to one of the other Dutch towns in Sioux County to do supply preaching. And he, he was an ordained minister in the Reformed Church in America, the RCA, but he didn't serve a congregation of his own. Again, that's part of the long story. So on this one Sunday, he was invited to pedal his bike to the little town of New Newkirk to preach at the Christian Reformed Church, the CRC, which to give you some context would be kind of like me as an ELCA pastor being invited to preach at a more conservative Missouri Synod or Wisconsin Synod Lutheran Church, both of whom, by their official stances anyway, would never ask me to do that. The reason Grandpa, as an RCA, Reformed Church in America pastor, was nevertheless invited to preach at the CRC Church, the Christian Reformed Church that day, is because two of the three board members of that particular Christian Reformed Church that year were, like my grandpa, Frisians. Frisians being from the area of the Netherlands called Friesland, who were known particularly for their stubborn independence, and in this case, too, for their apparent belief that blood runs deeper than theology. Grandpa, being, the, uh, well, being who he was, titled his sermon that morning, Does the Christian Reformed Church have the right to exist? He concluded his sermon, which was preached in Dutch, not Frisian, by saying, Nee, no, the Christian Reformed Church doesn't have the right to exist. Not surprisingly, very few members of that congregation returned for the evening worship service when Grandpa preached part two of the sermon, its theme being that his own dear Reformed Church in America didn't have the right to exist either. For the church exists not by rights, but by grace. And when we forget that, we will inevitably stop faithfully being Christ's church. Evidence, of course, abounds. It is grace, not rights, Grandpa said, that both births and leads the church of Christ. It is grace, not worthiness, Isaiah, Peter, and Paul all discovered that calls and sends into the world prophets and apostles of Jesus Christ. Which takes us to your call story. Which in most cases you, unlike Peter and Paul and Isaiah, you didn't immediately respond by responding that you were unworthy and unfit. For your call took place the day you were baptized, when in most of our cases, being infants at the time, we weren't even fit to be able to raise such a protest. Although a few of us did register the most compelling protest we could come up with by crying when the water was poured on us. And with the water, even if we were infants unable to hear it, with the water came the promise, you are my child. And with the promise came the call, be my child, for the sake of the healing and the saving of my world. It took till you were older before you at some point at last maybe did protest. Maybe with words something like, me? And the voice in the water says, yes, precisely you. And you maybe said, I'm not a prophet or a preacher or a Sunday school teacher. The spirit over the water says, I didn't say you were. I said you have a calling from God. 
Now that language of having a calling in life is oftentimes, not in, not in Lutheran churches if they've got their Lutheran going, but it's oftentimes used in the limited sense of what job you will have, what you will do for a living. Or when it comes to being called by God, people even often limit it even more by referring to those relatively few who will do something officially religious for a living. And let me be clear. To the degree that one can ever speak with confidence about what is the mind of God, there did come a time in my life when I did come to believe that I did have a call from God to leave public school band directing behind to become a Lutheran pastor. And for 42 years now, including seminary, I've been on that path. And here's the truth. There's not a day in all those years when I have felt like, well, hey, I'm Roger for crying out loud, Dykstra. I'm all over it. I'm, I'm completely up to it, this pastor thing. Never. Like, I mean, uh, well, visiting, visiting Al this week just before he died and then going with his kids to tell his wife of 58 years that he died or, or climbing into the pulpit every week, week after week, thinking that there's actually something to be said in the name of God, and I'm the one who's supposed to say it. Never have I felt that I'm all over that, and I'm completely up to that, and I've got everything it takes. But I do what I do with a sense that this is my calling, and the Spirit of God is up to it. The Spirit gives what it takes. So I do believe that I was, that I am, called by God to do the religious thing that I do. I would not do what I do without that. But with Luther in one of those strongest convictions he had, I do not believe that a holy calling or job must be a religious one. Nate was a young man in Lake Mills whom my daughter says was the son I never had and who, like me, loved music and who I thought would be a great pastor. And I told him so and I encouraged him toward that. Turns out there was one thing he didn't have. And that was a sense of call to be a pastor. He wanted to be a school band director. And he's gone on to become a very good one who doesn't just teach students about music, but with music teaches them about life. In perceiving, discerning my call, second to my wife, uh, it was my sister-in-law, Lorene, a public school teacher who was absolutely called by God to do that, who was one of the next most influential people in affirming that sense of call for me. When I one time I expressed to her that I was a little disappointed that Nate was following a different path because he'd make a great pastor. She said to me, Roger, the church doesn't get to have all the good ones. Our public schools need them too. She was exactly right. And Nate, with his gifts from God and with his love for God, is thriving in his calling that is, I have no doubt, holy and absolutely from God. Although it doesn't always go that way, does it? Some of you know this better than you wish you did. 
Like the woman who does the two jobs she does, not with a particular sense of calling to either of them or even much enjoying either of them, but rather because she has to do something in order faithfully to live into a call she does believe she has from God, and that is to be a mom to her child. Although the father of the child did not share that sense of call, and so she's a single mom. And she's a great mom. Sometimes, of course, between two jobs and a child, it feels a little much. And she feels like she's not up to it, that she doesn't have what it takes. But called by God, she's discovered that the Holy Spirit of God is up to it and gives what it takes. Back to you. Though the world does pretty much limit its use of the word vocation to refer to what it is you do for a living, the calling that calls to all from the waters of baptism is the call to a new way of living. Pastor Sarah mentioned last week that whether it's your sons or her students, the question, so what are you going to do in your life, can really be daunting. Talking later, we realized that we agreed that though, of course, as a parent or a pastor, you are there to help in any way you can, anyone who'd like help in trying to discern what to do, the deeper call, the more important call as a parent or a pastor is to help others grow in discerning who it is they will be no matter what it is they do. For unlike, as was the case with Peter and Andrew and James and John, and I guess me, as it turned out, Jesus doesn't necessarily call everyone to a particular or brand new way of making a living, but he does call all to a new way of living. Which means that whether your job's in church like mine, or in the loading dock at the elevator, the co-op elevator like my dad's was, or whether or not you have a job you like, or whether or not you have a job you all, you always have at least one vocation, one call from God. And that is to be who God has said you are, a child of God. Beloved of God, a swim daily in the deep waters of God's grace. Thus to be, in whatever other ways God absolutely has gifted you to be, God's love and God's grace for God's world. Like, as it turns out, the woman I was talking about earlier, who believes that in addition to being a mom, She's called by God at this point in her life to be God's love and grace for some others she works with who aren't crazy about their jobs either. Let me tell you something. If you're fishing for fish, you can try draping a worm on a hook. But when it comes to fishing for people, there's no lure so alluring as love draped with grace. For we are Christ's church. We don't exist by rights. We exist by love and grace. For love and grace. Amen.